Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, vetgurus.com. Brendan here with Mark, hopefully at the end of the internet's interwebs. It is February the 4th, 2020, episode 120, I think. Oh, it might be 121. I'll check that in a minute, Mark. How are you? I'm great, Brendan. How are you? I am excellent. It is 121, this episode, so there you go. How was that for a quick correction? Yes, it's an excellent week and day here in Melbourne, Australia. How is it up there in sunny hopefully sunny or cloudy, Newcastle, Newcastle, depending on your pronunciation there, Mark. It's it's great, Brendan. It is a wonderful day, about um, much the same temperature-wise, 20, 22 degrees, but um, we're a bit overcast up here today. And that overcast weather has been playing on my mind because, do you know what, Brendan? I didn't tell you this off air, but we've just, uh, I think it's eight days ago now, we had a Tesla battery installed on our house. We've had solar panels um, on the roof for several years, but we had a battery put in and it's a game changer, Brendan. I'm happy to tell you it's a game changer, but as a consequence, I'm constantly looking at the amount of sunlight that's uh, in the uh, environment so that I know that we're charging up our battery and not drawing power from the grid. Ah, well, you need to give our listeners and myself a bit more detail there, Mark. I'm very jealous. It has been something I've been thinking about doing for a while. I've, I, like you, have had solar power panels on the roof for a while and I've been tossing up at what point do I jump in and bite the bullet and get a storage battery. And I know there's a few a few particular brands out there here in Australia, but Tesla being one of them. And, um, yeah, fill us in. How did you decide on that particular brand? And um, um, did you just decide to bite the bullet now for for the environmental reasons or do you think it was a, a good sort of um, time with the prices coming down all the time that um, the payback period on it um, was reasonable? Yes, well, all of the above. We've um, we've we've had the uh, um, sixteen kilowatts of uh, the sixteen kilowatt equivalents of um, solar panels on the roof for I think eight years now. And when we first got them, there was not a great rebate, but we got a bit of a rebate, um, and that reduced our uh, electricity bill a little bit. But as everyone knows, that rebate in Australia is, um, has tapered off dramatically over the past seven or eight years to the point now where um, it's we still technically get, I think it's 1.8 cents for the same kilowatt hour that they retail for 80-odd cents or 90 cents to other households. So um, it's effectively nothing rebate-wise. And so we've persisted because, you know, for the good of the world, the good of the planet, if the electricity goes somewhere and saves another ton of carbon being burnt and turned into carbon dioxide, that's a good thing. But the battery has uh, just 
you know the the uh, they're all roughly the same ballpark. The Tesla is probably the more expensive of them, but geez, it's not as big a a uh, uh, you know that it's um, a relatively small piece of gear and um, and the payoff period for us actually turns out given um, it's only two and a half or three years and we'll have paid the thing off and um, over the since we've had it installed um, our uh, our draw on the grid has dropped to less than 12% of it what it was the week before. So um, the the uh, facility to store the power that we get from the sun in the battery has been immense for us. So that's awesome. Excellent. So what size is the battery? Did it, because I think, can you buy, diff, you know, you can add a couple if you wanted and not just the one. And I know some of the systems, I think the Tesla one just comes in one size. That's right. But some, yeah. of the, some of them are modular in that you can just add sort of little extra battery packs to them. And, and we, the Tesla one is just the one size. And we looked at, um, was it worth getting um, a couple of them? But I suppose on a philosophical level, I don't, you know, I I... I've always aspired to be, you know, the independent maverick that I am and I want to be off the grid. But um, also in a sort of social sense, you still want to maintain like some connection to those social, socially important infrastructures and contribute to them still. Um, so, so, you know, you don't, you don't want a whole suburb of people who are disconnected from the grid because then the grid infrastructure will decay. Um, but you want to take all the pressure off it. Um, and, yeah, um, the size that we are will allow us to very, very closely um, drop down to, you know, between 0 and 10% of the draw on the grid that we've had before. And, and, and hopefully that's a big, big, you know, lessens the pressure on the planet. Excellent. We will talk offline about this a little bit more, Mark, because I am very jealous. Now, just two, two more comments um, for our solar podcast this week. Um, um, I have four kilowatt um, pan, uh, total in the panels, and we were limited in about how much we were allowed to actually have in a in a um, in a um, little domestic um, setup here in Victoria. So we could only, um, at that stage, only put a four kilowatt panel total um, draw. Did you say yours was 16 or something? I think it is 16. I'd, I'd have to double check that. But yeah, it's 16, I think. Um, and I think, like, it's an interesting thing to contemplate how government has to manage this because obviously now it's feasible for people, for many people. It's not good for us as a community but it is feasible that people can just jump off the the um the the grid altogether and as i said if you jump off the grid altogether and you know if you had two of these and it was um and you had a decent size property and so you could be con confident of getting the power to charge the batteries all the time you could be off the grid um and then then if nobody but the heavy industrial users are using the electricity from power stations and they're already getting it cheap, there's not going to be enough money to maintain the infrastructure. So um, so there have been some rules about how much you can do. I know it's been different in each state, but, um, but yeah, I think the difficult thing is that it's getting, you know, the science is developing so quickly, it's getting so efficient um, and cost-effective that... Um, that even It'd be with, crazy not to do it. Oh, yes. that's what I reckon. Yes. Um, and the second question, 
and the end of our podcast for this week, solar panel <laughs> discussion, is when are you buying your Tesla car then, Mark, or are you looking into electric vehicles? Oh, we are, we are, but um, but still that's a bit, and particularly in Australia, the... the um, We're not quite there, are we, with no, no lack of subsidies and, and the actual cost of, of, of the, even the hybrid ones, I, I think that's probably what a lot of people will be going to, um, like the... the um, Super, uh, the Toyota Hybrid um, Rav Four, I think, is is very popular. There's a huge back order with those ones, um, and we've had a we've had a Prius for um, you know two iterations, and uh, they're excellent cars. That um, you know, Kate drives the Prius. So I've got a a, a diesel Toyota, and and um, literally, it's ten times more expensive for me to fill the you know to travel the same distance and use the the Toyota as it is for Kate to use the Prius. So um, definitely at least a hybrid. I don't think we'll be able to afford one of the new electric uh, Tesla trucks um, that are shaped a little bit um, unpleasantly. But um, but yeah, the world is changing under our feet. And it's it's um, uh, individuals, not governments, that are making the change. Excellent, Mark. And I'm not surprised you have a huge battery there, Mark, because as you know, I think the sun shines out of your um, solar panels. There, there, there we go. So I think we should get off our, our solar um, our solar um, soap box, Mark, or our solar box. And um, you want to have a little shout out to our researcher, Doug, because he did reply to one of our questions that we couldn't answer ourselves. I did. In I did. Real time. Yeah. It, after he'd finished his usual 72 hour uh, shift per week researching for the podcast, uh, he did. Um, he did look up a little bit of did a bit of extra research, and uh, so I'm going to read this from the note that he sent us. Um, Okay, I took the bait and accepted the challenge, but may not make it for last week's podcast. Potter Park Zoo is so named because it is located within the large park in Lansing, Michigan, called Potter Park. Duh. Um, that's his duh, not mine. Potter Park is itself is thus named because in 1951, J.W. and Sarah Potter donated 58 acres of land to the city of Lansing, which later became known as, uh, in celebration of the donation, Potter Park. In 1917, due to the popularity of Potter Park, Mr. and Mrs. Potter contributed an additional 27 acres, increasing the park size to 85 acres. The zoo was established in 1920. In 1927, Sophie Turner, another Lansing resident, unfortunately not celebrated in the name, uh, presented another 17 acres to the city um, for Potter Park, bringing the zoo's total acreage to 102. Um, so... Uh, Potter Park's zoos, so that's how the, the zoo got its name, from the Potter family. Uh, Potter Park Zoo's two-week-old black rhino calf has a name uh, after a week-long public vote, um, which was lucky it didn't happen in Australia, otherwise it would be Rhino McRhino face. Uh, but it turned out <laughs> to be Jarley. Jarley is pronounced very close to Jolly, um, and it means powerful in Swahili. However, I did find, and this is Doug just taking research to the next level, I did find another take on the name Jali, um, which is apparently an urban slang word used to describe a man who enjoys making extremely loud and ear-bleeding noises while in a voice call specifically aimed towards a female named Alice who wishes she was dead. 
Um, the name Charlie comes from a long thread involving hot dogs, milk and Twitch raids. It's said that those that are named Charlie will continuously chant the words empty milk and hot dog in front of thousands of people at once with no shame. Despite Charlie's often fr- being a friendly creature, they will not hesitate to scream at you for playing Fortnite. I don't know, Doug's just taking this research thing to the, to a, a place we probably didn't need to go. I didn't understand a word of that last uh, last couple of minutes there, Mark. But, yes, thank you, Doug, as usual, for um, for your due diligence for us and um, much appreciated. And at least we know where Potter Park got its name, Mark. Yes. Um, well, that's it for this week. I think we better go. And um, we'll jump into some news. And this week's main episode is exactly that. It is a whole lot of news stories because we've got – I think I've got about 30 news stories now. We need to try and rip through a few of them and tick them off the list today, Mark, and um, you can take the first one. Well, the first one is one that um, I think um, most of our listeners would at least have a a vague familiarity with. Um, It's an article from The Good Weekend, an insert into the Sydney Morning Herald, Age and Brisbane Time newspapers from the mainstream media here in Australia, Um, and it talks about the obesity crisis affecting Australia's pets. So uh, in the usual fashion of these uh, inserts, weekend inserts, it starts with a very personable parable, personal parable about um, about uh, Sandy, the labradoodle food monster um, who, uh, well, just... Uh, came to visit as the the friends of the author went away and um, and and ate quite a lot, quite a lot, striking the author Frank um, as uh, um, is as unusual and particularly unusual in that um, Sandy he had his own dog Alfie um, and uh, it would appear that the Labradoodle well freaked him out a little bit in that. Um, it ate so much so quickly. She scoffed her own meals in seconds, he reports. Then no matter how carefully I separated them or staggered their feeding time, she'd find a way of gobbling up most of Al's portions as well. We all know dogs like that. Um, so uh, Frank leads on from the specific example of Sandy, the bottomless Labradoodle, um, to talk about the fact that in Australia and many uh, first world countries around the world, um, more than half and of dogs and more than a third of cats are um, overweight or obese. Um, and um, and geez, uh, there are a whole range of um, of health consequences for owners um, and for the animals involved that, uh, in my mind, actually represent an animal welfare issue. Australia. Let me just check these these numbers. Um, Australia laid claim in the good old days for the world's fattest cat, uh, Himmy, a massive 21.3 kilogram tabby who had to be trundled around his can's home in a wheelbarrow before, unsurprisingly, succumbing to respiratory disease in 1986. Um, but um, we Definitely, um, I know in our practice we see an increased number of uh, pets of all different species where 
they are not sufficiently exercised, they don't have enough environmental enrichment, um, and they get lots of high-quality food, um, and um, that formula, whether it's people or animals, inevitably leads to obesity, and then in turn leads to those series of diseases associated with being over, overweight, um, diabetes, uh, de degenerative joint disease, a bunch of other endocrinopathies. Um, so it's pleasing to see, Brendan, that this story is making its way into the mainstream media and hopefully people will be more responsive to our exhortations to get their pets to lose weight. Well, we've been over this before, Mark, but we need to say it again. It's amazing how many obese, unusual pets we see. And I think it's an important article because it sort of reminds us to mention to our listeners that, gee, it's a, um, I'm still staggered to this day how many of our unusual pet owners come in with their unusual pets and they just do not even have any inkling that their animal is overweight and I'm sure you're going to say the same Mark but it's it's an interesting process and I know we've spoken about in several of our previous podcasts which you can get at vetgurus.com of of overfeeding the unusual pets and importance of of stimulating them the environmental enrichment the feeding the hiding the food uh, measuring the food amounts they feed not feeding reptiles for instance every day and and our Concern with with snakes that are kept with their internal internal fat stores, for example. Um, yeah, I'm I'm just amazed continuously that donors just do not realise that hey, I've got an incredibly obese rat, ferret, bird, reptile, um, any uh, any of our common unusual pets or even our uncommon ones, Mark. And then we have to go through that whole process of saying hey, stop feeding it X and Y and stop feeding it as much. Um, do you find exactly the same as that, Mark? I'm sure you're going to say yes. Yes. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, it, but the interesting thing to um, – and it, it, the key thing I think about that is that um, people definitely – this is an example, I think, of anthropomorphizing. And, and I know that we take great pains to not necessarily impose human – um, explanations, human characteristics onto animals. They're not usually, they don't usually work. But this is one where people feel incredibly, well, rewarded. They they get the release of all the love, the oxytocin and the enkephalins and endorphins when they feed an animal. And, um, and so even though that animal, a bearded dragon, for example, might only need to be fed two or three times a week, it often ends up, we've got some of those lizards that get fed, you know, three times a day, um, and yes. and often the tastiest, most uh, energy rich foods, not the, and and you know where that's going to end up. Um, so, yep, all, across all species, this article focuses on the more domestic ones, but um, but our our other patients definitely suffer the same circumstance. Yes, fat animals, um, and it's. Even more difficult when you have the fat owners as well in the consult room, isn't it, Mark? It's that 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 sort of um, difficulty, isn't it? I'm explaining um, that hey, your animal's perhaps a little bit overweight, and they sometimes take it as a an insult to themselves. And um, well, there's two amazing sides to that. I reckon there's two amazing groups. There's the first one who who you can see literally start to take offence that 
that you are suggesting their animal is overweight and what do you mean and and you know if 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 i'm you know i eat this way and i'm okay even though they're not they take offense then there's the others who who genuinely there's a that classic cognitive dissonance where they um they talk to you like they're completely normal and the animal's overweight and yet they're carrying a little bit extra as well. So, so yeah, it is. It, this is one of those special cases, Brendan. We've talked about it before in previous podcasts, where um, it does take some experience and balance and a very delicate communication to get this message across to some people without um, offending them. I reckon you're right. Yes, it is. Um, it's a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge um, with them, but. Um, Good article to start with, and as usual, we, we said we were going to be punchy, weren't we? And um, quick, and um, rip through all these all these little stories. But uh, we're already what twenty minutes in, and we've covered one news story. But that's fine. We're enjoying ourselves, and hopefully, we're keeping our listeners awake. Mark, my first one is a pretty quick one, and um, I was going to hand this one to you, but I've stolen it, Mark, because I liked it. Um, veterinarians treat exotic bird, realize it's just a seagull. Covered in curry is the um, is the title there, Mark. And I liked this for several reasons. Um, and you'll see as I as I um, mention some of the quotes, or I quote from the article there, Mark. Um, the comment about seagulls, and I know you love that word, and you can um, talk to our listeners about that shortly about that particular word. Um, the second part is the well, the second comment is this was from the UK, and it was reported in well this. I think the article I have is from Mashable Australia website, but um, the name of the wildlife hospital where this bird was taken to is the Tigley Winkles Wildlife Hospital, Mark, um, in the UK. What a great name for a, for a hospital there. Um, so somebody, a, a, an orange bird was found by a passerby and brought to the animal hospital um, and they took it to this Tigley Winkles wildlife hospital thinking that it was some sort of exotic bird and it needed to go to the wildlife hospital and um, according to the hospital um, spokesperson they said we had no idea what to expect and we would have never guessed it the bird as it turned out was covered in curry or turmeric mark Um, so aside from smelling a bit pungent and we'll I'll put a post on our website for this particular article as usual we we put links for all these articles on um, vetgurus.com and they called the they called the bird vinnie mark after the indian vindaloo dish as as you do um and he's on the road to being released and there's a great picture of him gee he looks they did a good job didn't that with the the, the coloring of him i'm um, there with that does certainly look like um turmeric they've covered it in there um and they have some before and after um pictures there mark um so it's the first time wildlife specialists have had to treat a curry soaked bird according to the article um and aside from looking mildly traumatized after his bath Vinny looked great he probably didn't taste as well um and um in 2016 they do mention in the article that a seagull seagull named Golfrizzy fell into a vat of chicken tikka masala, Mark, while trying to scavenge for food in a factory in the UK. Um, and according to the Guardian, a team of veterinary staff were able to wash him off and return into his originally color, his original colours, but the curry smell lingered. <laughs> I find that very, um, I find that very um, 
um, very unlikely, Mark, um, a a girl falling into a vat of chicken tikka masala. Um, I presume it must have been cold, um, otherwise he'd be um, he'd be well and truly on his way to being eaten. I expect there. Um, and the only other quote I'd like to make from this article: the thing that shocked us most was the smell. Veterinary nurse Lucy Kell said at the time. He smelled amazing. He smelled really good. <laughs> you, can, you can almost hear, you can almost see Lucy salivating at the. Yes, that's right. So there we go. Hopefully, Vinny doesn't suffer a similar turmeric laced fate. According, it was the last com, uh, last two cent, last, second last sentence, um, penultimate sentence. Tickly Winkles posted that he'll be recovered enough for release very soon. So there we go, Mark. So why do you think or how do you think he ended up covered in this this um, turmeric or curry, Mark? It's very difficult. The only thing I can think of is that someone's discarded a meal, maybe wrapped up in, you know, some uh, newspaper or something like that, and the bird's gotten in and rolled around in it and got covered in it. I don't – I can't see any other – you know they're not going to fall into a vat, as you said. It's uh, going to be short, um, short order before they do end Christmas. part of the meal. Um, but um, but yeah, I think uh, it's it reminds me of the whole blue sulphur crested cockatoos in in uh, in Sydney story. We we can um, uh, we unless you know, you don't know how did it happen. Yes, well, we don't know, do we? End of story. <laughs> So what's your second news story, Mark? My second news story is a wonderful one. Well, it's sort of anything to do with bears I love, but this story is um, uh, from the Mother Nature Network, our favorite, one of our favourite resources, um, and it talks about the uh, brown bears in the rehabilitation centre um, Sinevre National Park in southwest Ukraine. Um, in, u- in winter, these bears are usually go into torpor, sometimes called hibernation, but more accurately a a period of torpor. But this year, the bears, the the temperatures are so high in that part of the world, um, they talk about there being, you know, only one week of genuine winter temperatures in early December. Um, And so the the three bears at the rehabilitation centre, that's Benya, Drury and Potapich began to uh, only just like they didn't they didn't hibernate. Um, they those own three began to have a snooze on that cold uh, week, but um, the other twenty nine residents uh, didn't even um, have have a kip. They just went straight through the whole of winter um, uh, without uh, having a break, and so. Um, this is, you know, obviously with all the fires and all the changes in the environment, another example of uh, the effects of um, uh, human-induced uh, global warming, um, and um, and it and it's hard to know, you know, it's an interesting thing to look at bears in a um, in a rehabilitation centre and uh, and sort of say. It's noteworthy that they haven't slipped into their winter hibernation, in inverted commas. Um, But um, it would be interesting to know, we know that the metabolism of many of the animals that hibernate can cope with one or two years where that doesn't happen. But very often their um, metabolic and endocrinological results from 
um, from not having that period of torpor um, that can have health effects uh, that last into the rest of their life. So, um, so while it's a little bit interesting that um, that just uh, a what is the um, the temperature? There's it doesn't say in the article what the um, rise was compared, um, but um, temperature in mid-December were 10 to 12 degrees um, uh, Celsius. Yeah, so the average monthly temperature for December at that part of the world was minus 2. So that's, um, you know, 14 degrees in some instances warmer. So it's not a big surprise the bears thought it was spring rather than the dead of winter. Yes, I do have the microphone on, which is good. Um, just double-checking there, Mark, um, as usual, professional. Um, yes, I don't think I've got much much else to add to that story. I fell asleep um, while you were chatting there, Mark, or did I go into a torpor? I do not know. Um, my next news story is Indonesians grapple with a cobra invasion, and you have a little story to um, add to this, which although it wasn't Indonesia, it was a Malaysian story. You can add that at the end, Mark, um, or interrupt at any time. And this was reported um, on Christmas Day um, in the Sydney Morning Herald. Hundreds of people living in a housing complex 35 kilometres to the south of the Indonesian capital have been forced to learn safe snake handling techniques or they die, I suppose, Mark, <laughs> to cope with an unprecedented reptile invasion. Since late November, dozens of snakes, mostly cobras, and we have been found in Jakarta and other places in the Indonesian air region, and most are baby or young snakes. And they've been, and I was just hesitating there because I was looking at that little capture technique there, Mark, of the plastic bottles there, the drink bottles where they'd um, collected them there. Do you know the technique of how they get them into those bottles, Mark, those those young snakes? Do they put a little bit of a, you know, um, a, a scent or some sort of food item in there? No, I don't think. I think what they do is um, is arrange... Moisture or... They arrange it against a wall. They have like a, um, uh, you know, the the small opening at the end of a long wall. The snakes will hit the wall, go along and find a small hole and go in and then often just curl up and wait um, in a hiding place. So I don't think they sent them. Sometimes I think um, they do put um, uh, a bird in there, um, but I don't think they did in this instance. That makes sense. And as a good friend... Dr. Robert Johnson um, liked to um, – he, he loves words, doesn't he, Mark? And, and thigmotaxic is the word that he always says with that. Snakes are thigmotaxic in that they like to push against surfaces. Um, so they will tend to go a, a, along the edge of a wall or down the bottom of a, a, of a floor there, Mark, and then, yeah, put in that drink bottle there. Um, makes sense because they'll be going along the wall and then they'll crawl into that um, little bottle there. Um, so in the article, they have the picture of these um, juvenile snakes being caught there. Um, but yeah, a bit of a bit of a um, bit of an increase in the numbers there. Um, uh, on December the fifteenth, thirty cobra shells were found inside a residential area in one particular area on the outskirts of Jakarta, while four men died in a village in South Sulawesi after being bitten by a cobra. There, Mark. Um, so, yeah, they go on and talk a little bit about um, um, chat to a herpetologist who um, who um, 
um, mentions the reproductive rate of them and the fact that this that is the time of the year, November, December, that um, all the young snakes are hatching out of their eggs there, Mark. So um, I'm trying to um, put a spin on or, or make a final comment on this one, Mark. Why let I'll me be- tell you, before you do, let me tell you about my story. Um, yes. A friend of mine um, who knows of my particular love of all things natural history and particularly reptiles and birds, um, he sent me – he lives in – um, Malaysia, just outside Singapore, and he sent me a picture from his driveway um, where – so the, the snakes involved in this Indonesian uh, news report are the, um, are the, the um, uh, Indonesian archipelago spitting cobras. They are very, very common. And my friend had uh, a photograph of one of the spitting cobras uh, of this species um, being consumed by a king cobra. So he had cobra inception in his driveway, Brendan. That is scary. And I mentioned that um, when we had a little discussion about it off off air. And um, for our listeners, um, any of our listeners in Malaysia and Singapore, um, just quietly, I'm heading over there in June if um, you're interested in um, sending me an email about places to visit um, or, or things to see and do. Um, I have a few very close friends in Singapore, so I'm, I'm pretty conversant with Singapore. I've been there several times, but I'll be heading over to Malaysia um, on a bit of a trip for a few days, a road trip with my um, aquatic vet friend, Fred, and um, we're going to have a little bit of a travel around Malaysia, Mark. And um, as I mentioned to you off air, I'll be sure to take a few pictures there, Mark, and uh, um, hopefully not too close with some of those um, those, um, venomous reptiles. Which that part of the world leads me on to my final news story, Brendan, um, talking about uh, um, Indonesia and Singapore. Um, uh, I am pleased to report that um, uh, a team from the University of Singapore, led by Professor Frankie Wright, um, visited Sulawesi, uh, in fact, conducted a six-week expedition around the island. And you know Sulawesi is one of my favourite spots. I've done some birding there, um, done some diving there. Um, it's really a part of the world that um, holds great attraction and many fond memories for me. So it's no big surprise to me that uh, during this short trip of um, of uh, of only six weeks, the team was able to um, to discover um, ten new uh, taxa, five new species and five new subspecies um, identified on the islands, um, the small islands around the main island of Sulawesi. Um, and it doesn't surprise me, Brendan. They, uh, as I was talking to you off air, um, Sulawesi is in that sort of. Um, uh, uh, very close to the Wallace line, the area where um, uh, Australian species extend up to and Asian species reach down to. So it's got a fairly unique cross-section of species, some that I never see because they're predominantly Asian and some that are exceedingly uh, familiar. And one of the species they identify in, in amongst the the new ones that they discovered was is looks very familiar. It's a very closely related type of honey eater. The Taliabu Mizamela um, is very, very closely related to our scarlet honey eaters here in Eastern Australia. And, um, and so it's, um, 
it's it's great news and always um you you uh feel good that people even in this day and age are discovering um new birds and and uh new um contributors to the environment and of course the more we know about them the more uh I think we're enabled, the more likely we are to be able to save um, them because we're more invested and have more understanding. I just hope the race to get there and save them, I hope we're on the team that make it, Brendan. Yes. Well, we always like to be on the winning team, don't we? But who knows if that will happen with this. And speaking of team, how's that for a segue, Mark? Meet the team rescuing animals from your plastic waste is my last news story. And this is reported in the Age newspaper here in Melbourne. And it is about the, let me scroll down, what do they call themselves? The MZMRU, Mark. Do you know what that is? It. I will tell you. It is Melbourne Zoo's marine response unit um so um, a crack a crack squad of wildlife experts who say they distress excellent yes um wish they called that when i worked for um zoos victoria mark um where were the hills feel we'll have to i have to think up a, a little acronym for the team that we had um, um crack probably wasn't the um wasn't the word for it, although there was one guy who used to have his pants that used to sit a little bit low, so um, perhaps we could be called <laughs> that at that stage. Anyway, back to the news story. Um, this is about um, the group that is going out um, rescuing animals um, as, as, as the um, Marine Response Unit um, would you'd expect them to do, Mark. And um, Mark Keenan, who coordinates the team, say um, people don't realise how much damage a piece of plastic can do. And I know you've spoken about this several times, Mark, throughout our um, podcast previously about the damage to birds with um, plastic and um, the worry and the concern long-term with plastic material. And they've got a couple of pictures there. They've got one of a picture of a data with gauze, not plastic, wrapped around its beak there. And um, they use that as an example of about um, the data that was um, impaled. Um, no, it wasn't. I was flapping around the city with the gauze um, around it and um, they get called out to it. Um, and, um, yeah, there's – well – it's again, it's another one of these articles that I was tossing up whether or not I should include it in there, Mark, because I was trying to work out um, um, a bit of a, you know, how I like a bit of a theme with my articles and, or to have a bit of a bit of a pun at the end of it, Mark, and I've got nothing <laughs> for this one. I've got nothing. Um, I just like the thought that um, they call themselves the MZMRU, and as you know, um, you call them the, the crap, crack team of wildlife experts. And it made me a little bit jealous, Mark. Um, um, yes. <laughs> That's all I've got. That's all um, I've got for this one. I, I do I do think um, that it's uh, there's two main points in this one. That the, the volumes, the, the numbers, particularly with the fires lately and uh, and additional research, when they when they talk about 3.4 million tonnes of plastic are used in Australia each year and 1.4 billion pieces of rubbish flowing into the Yarra and Maribyrnong rivers each each year. Which are our main rivers here in Melbourne, yes. Um, I, it's, sorry. I, I, worry, I worry that, like those, to those of us that reflect on these stories, those numbers have meanings. But I wonder if the general public is starting to become inured to the the you know the the 
the these numbers that they're starting to lose um, impact because they just are beyond what people can comprehend um, in their sort of routine daily life. The concept that um, two what are the, I think they're talking between one and two billion animals perished in the fires, and and I think it just it starts to be meaningless for people. Yeah, because it's so enormous, or that it, uh, these we get rep- reports of these types of disasters or catastrophes um, increasingly, and we become a bit numb about it, don't we, and immune about it. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's what the sad thing I found with those statistics for this article, Mark, you mentioned the three point four million tons of plastic used in Australia every year. Um, only 320,000 of that 3.4 million tonnes are recycled. So, um, and it just left in landfill. So, yeah, that's um, that's my um, depressing summary. There, there was one. Article. There was one other um, important statistic that um, I drew out of my copy of that article, and that is that um, our researcher Doug has. Uh, um, has been taking advantage. We have five free articles remaining from from the age. We're not going to be able to use the age anymore as a source of news after we look at five more articles, unless we subscribe. That's all right, Mark. I've I've got a subscription. It's um so it's all good. I get the weekend delivery of the paper on Saturday and Sunday, and um, if I'm not working on Saturday and every Sunday. Well, Work because I don't work on Sunday. I, I have a bit of a, a slow morning and I get up early and have a bit of a breakfast and just sit there and read the paper. So it's all good with that. Um, one of the other things, the, the final point, and I now I know why I pulled up that article because I finally finished reading it. Mark um, is um, among and this was I found this quite astonishing. Among the items that cause the most injuries to wildlife are baseball caps. Wow. Discarded at sea or blown off in a strong wind, the cap's fabric degrades in the water and the sharp plastic band is left behind. So um, according to one of the authors in the articles or the um, person they quoted from, we have had several animals, seals in particular, caught up in hat bands and we have had animals nearly die from it. So that's an interesting one, Mark. And and I could certainly see, and I have seen people that have been on boats or um, ships where their their little baseball caps um, or cap, um, have flown off, you know, flown off in a bit of gust of wind and ended in the sea. So, yeah. So there you go. That is interesting. I'll have to... Um cut the plastic band on my baseball cap because I'm clumsy enough to lose it as I go out for a uh, bit of a wander in the ocean. And it puts a, another spin on the feather in your cap, Mark, um, quote, doesn't it? There we go. At that point, we'll say goodbye and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thanks.